If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them over to the letter to the Ephesian church. Uh, If you are visiting with us, normally we work our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse on Communion Sundays. Normally we step away from our exposition and have something that is geared toward the supper. But this morning, providentially, just happens to be a morning, our time when we are in between studies of just having completed Ruth and now, uh, God willing, next Sunday, resuming our study through uh, the book to, or the letter to the Roman church. This morning, we are going to be looking at a, at a small paragraph out of Ephesians 5, specifically verses uh, 15 to 21, uh, more or less, 15 to 21, because they, they, are a, they form a nice bridge between ideas, a nice bridge between uh, if you look at Romans 12 and it becomes the imperative for what do you do with all this rich theology that Paul lays out in the beginning of Romans, how must we live? So being transformed by the renewing of our minds, what does that mean? What does it look like? We'll get into all that when we get to Romans. But a nice bridge between you've got the theme of Ruth, which has been so prevalent, which we looked at repeatedly on redemption, that God's purpose was to redeem Ruth and Naomi by means of Boaz, but ultimately much larger than that as we looked at the genealogy last Sunday, that there's a larger work of redemption to come through the line of David and Christ. So the, the question I think that we as believers need to constantly be asking is we, we get the rich truth, we get the wonderful themes of redemption, we get the wonderful themes of rescue and salvation being bought back from destitution, being bought back from destruction, but what do we do with that? I mean, that's, that becomes the question. Is it's great if we know it, it's great because it's true, but how does it ultimately impact our lives? How is it meant to impact our lives? What is the ripple effect of these wonderful theological realities? Because they have to have one, right? It's, if we look at redemption, the act of redemption is like a pebble cast into a body of water, so an action occurs. And so you have a ripple effect from that action. And in other words, it, has, it bears fruit. It's meant to produce something. And so I think that Ephesians 5 does a great job in helping us answer if we're redeemed in Christ, which we are, if redemption is God's work and His people, and it is, uh, to what end? And I think Romans 12 to 16 does a, a lot to answer that. But Paul, in this wonderful, very brief letter to the Ephesian church, kind of in some, thinking through the rich theology that you have in Ephesians, in some, what does that mean? Like, so what do we do with it? In other words, if we're going to focus this morning on the table, which we are, we're focusing on the body that was given, the blood that was shed, it's rich enough that it is to our salvation, but it's even richer that it means that, beloved, we're not just rescued from hell. We are. That is true. We are rescued from hell in Christ. But we are rescued to live for Christ, not to just escape death, but to live for Christ. And we live in a culture of death that would seek to subvert that, right, that would seek to quell it. I mean, for so long we've been taught that our religion has no place in the public square that we've subtly bought into, and I'm not saying us in this room, I just mean people in general, have subtly brought into this, bought into this idea that my religious convictions are my private beliefs not meant to be lived out in the public square or spoken about. 
That is a lie from the devil. Because we are called, we are called to live for Christ in every moment. In other words, beloved, living for Christ in every moment is the ripple effect of our redemption. So I think Paul does a great job. <laughs> that's, that's the understatement of the year. <laughs> I think Paul really does do a great job, though, of laying this out in just beautiful yet simple terms. I do not like dropping into a book of the Bible, much less a paragraph within that book, but I'm going to do it today. And I'm going to try to build a little bit of the backstory a little bit here for in just a few moments to get to the major punch, the clincher for what we're talking about this morning. This morning, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 15, and I'm going to read through verse 21. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You so much for this time, this Word, its richness, its beauty. Be with us this morning. Open up our minds and hearts to receive from You. Father, that we might be confronted with rich truths that emanate from a great Savior and that we might be transformed. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Just a little bit of the backstory. The book of Ephesians, a favorite book of some of the reformers, one of my favorite books. Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul lays the groundwork for a lot of the thinking that is uh, foundational to the gospel. So he gives all these rich theological truths, all this rich teaching instruction on kind of how we're to think about Christ, about the gospel, about one another, how we pray for one another. And then in chapter 4, he begins to transition to what a lot of commentators will call the imperative. In other words, it's not just instruction now. Now it becomes command. So instruction and exhortation. So now we've gotten through the uh, Ephesians 1 to 3 gives us uh, the information. Now what do you do with it? This is what I love about Paul, highly pragmatic. He gives the good information and then says, okay, what are we to do with it? Well, if you were to back up just a little bit and you start in verse 4, verse 4 begins with, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the therefore, therefore? Remember, we ask that question often of the text. What is the therefore, therefore? The therefore is there to connect this new idea with now what's come before. In other words, since the previous is true, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's beginning to lay down foundational stones for what it means to live 
for Christ. In verse 17 in chapter 4, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, again, since all this is true, be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm going to skip over, but be filled with the Spirit. Can I tell you something, that of all those verses I just read, there is nothing fundamentally different about each command. They are imperatives. In other words, they're urgent commands by the Apostle Paul that we're supposed to do something. He interchanges the word walk and live, walk and live. There is no fundamental difference between those. When Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit, to not walk in the futility of the Gentiles, to be children of light or to walk in the light, it is not fundamentally different from his command to be filled with the Spirit because he's calling us to respond to an action that Christ has done on our behalf to be different, to live differently, to walk differently. And in other words, you could take each one of those phrases and begin explaining them by the other. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to walk in the light. It means to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. It means to be uh, to not walk as, like verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. It means to walk wisely. And so we begin, I mean, there are certain sectors of evangelicalism who will take that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, and make it mean something that it's not meant to mean. However you feel about the gifts of the Spirit, one of the things that Paul does not mean here is be filled with the Spirit means that you will speak in tongues, that you will prophesy, that you will have a word of knowledge, or that you will heal. That's a different discussion. That's not what Paul means here. Paul tells us exactly what he means, and I'm going to ferret this out here in just a moment. But I want to make it clear that Paul is calling us to a fundamental difference in how we live. So if we're redeemed, right, if, if the beautiful story of Ruth is true, and uh, spoiler alert, it is, if it's true, then it means something for how we live. And Paul is latching onto this, not Ruth specifically, I'm just taking that theme, Paul is latching on to this idea that we can't do what the Pharisees did, which was to have all this rich knowledge about God and theology and not really put much of it into practice, not the key parts. And so, beloved, we could become great Pharisees if we wanted to have lots of head knowledge and no real reaction. We could become great uh, licentious people if we wanted to have no head knowledge and just live what, quote-unquote, freely. But Scripture doesn't let us make either mistake. It compels us to know and to live. It compels us to recognize the beauty of redemption and to see how it leads us. And so this morning, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He's building here. He's building up. He's already uh, told us to be imitators of God as beloved children. So what does that mean? He walk in love as Christ loved us. That's Ephesians 5, 2, and gave himself up for us. Again, what is Paul doing? He's rooting the Christian life in the sacrifice of Christ. He's rooting this new life 
in the body and the blood because Christ gave himself as a fragrant offering for his people. And then he picks up that idea. Look carefully then how you walk. Again, walk, live, same idea. So you could interchange. Look carefully then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. What does that mean? That doesn't just mean intellect. And remember, we've talked about this before. It's easy to let wisdom just, we think of Solomon, we think of really smart. Wisdom in the Bible does require the capacity to think, but it also requires the capacity to take what you know and apply it to your life. So in other words, how do you avoid folly? By walking in the precepts of truth. So when we're talking about living wisely, we're talking about living for the sake and glory and by the power of Christ. And then Paul clarifies this. How do we live as wise? Well, one thing is making the best use of our time. That'll, that'll preach by itself. Making the best use of our time. In the context of Ephesians, what is the best use of our time? Well, I'll answer it for you. It's walking in love. It's being an imitator of God as dearly loved children. It's walking in the light. It's not walking in the futility of the Gentiles, as Paul says. It's not embracing anything of our former life, but using the time to glorify God both in how we live, how we treat each other, how we relate, how we minister, and all manner of different things. The best use of our time is to live solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And we can ferret that out in our own context of how do we as individuals do that? Well, in our jobs, in our marriages if we're married, with our children if we're parents, in our relationships, and how we treat people, and so forth and so on. So making the best use of the time. Why do we need to do that? Causal statement. Why? Because the days are evil. So what we're getting, we're getting a clue. What is the best use of our time? Whatever is not evil right? Fighting against the forces of evil, fighting against the natural urge to sin, because that is going to take us back away from the reality of our redemption. And so it, it becomes this concept of fighting for, living for, walking in righteousness. That beautiful word there in the Greek Testament, well, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament as well, that implies, as we know, as you've heard me say before many times, relationship being rightly related to God. And so Paul builds here, therefore, so since that is true, since we make the best use of the time, since we walk as wise, since we understand that the days are evil and we have to live for Christ, so what is the opposite? This is the put on, put off motif of Paul. Put on wisdom, put off foolishness. So he says, therefore, don't be foolish, <laughs> foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he juxtaposes folly, foolishness, with understanding. Not just smarts, not just being intellectually sound, but understanding something very specific, what the will of the Lord is. Blood of God, people get into these mystical uh, exercises of trying to ferret out what the will of God is the will of God is plainly written for us in Scripture. I'm not saying that everything's always easy to understand by any stretch. Some of the things are complex in the Bible. The book of Hebrews is complex. The book of Isaiah is complex. Ezekiel is complex. But to understand what the will of the Lord is, is really to understand what is written in the precepts of Scripture and living those out. How do we battle foolishness and folly? Well, we are redeemed 
right? We're bought back from sin and death. And that blood and body given for us begins a process of transformation where we live for Christ. So we, we're not foolish. We understand what the will of God is. And then we get to the crux, what I would call the climax of this paragraph, the pinnacle, really. So don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I love, I love these two ideas juxtaposed with one another. Don't be filled with this thing that will rob you of your understanding, that will rob you of wisdom, that will rob you of doing well. Be filled with the one that will give you the things and spades that you need. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We're talking about being filled with the Spirit. It gives us the very opposite of what intoxication will give. Intoxication, I think it's an interesting thing that Paul would pick here because it's a popular sin then and it's a popular sin now because it offers escape. It offers freedom. It offers times where you feel like you can numb the mind and the body and not feel. And God says in His holy word that is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Paul lived in a culture of Romans who are known for their parties, really. They're historic, in fact. And here comes this Hebrew from the Middle East saying, no, 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 that's not the way. If you're going to live wisely, if you're going to walk in the light, if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, if you're going to be an imitator of God, that's not the way. The way is to be filled with the one who gives life, not death who gives peace, not conflict, who gives clarity, not confusion, and who gives joy and not sadness. Be filled with the Spirit. What you should understand about this, just like be an imitator of God, just like walk in the light, that's what's called an imperative verb. If you don't know what an imperative verb is, it's this. It's the verb of command. This is not a request by Paul. This is not a suggestion by Paul. This is an express command by Paul under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you, it's, not, not, it's just a good idea that you guys be filled with the Spirit. No, be filled with the Spirit. Beloved, this is not a separate event from our salvation. This is not a separate act. This is not something where you come down to the front and some special dude from out of town lays hands on you and automatically, voila, you're filled with the Spirit. That ain't it. And I can say that because growing up, in a particular uh, tradition, I experienced those types of things. And I love that Scripture doesn't let us buy into that. Being filled with the Spirit is something that happens to believers on the acceptance of Christ, and we come again and again to be renewed in that filling. What Paul is telling us here is to walk in the Spirit, be an imitator of God, uh, follow the instincts and the, and the leading of the Spirit so that we're not following our flesh, in other words, to be filled with the Spirit is directly juxtaposed and contrary to following our flesh. And so that's what Paul is doing here. Now, again, I've already alluded to this. The big question becomes, how do we know that we're filled with the Spirit? Well, there are a few things that we could point to, but Paul doesn't leave that to question here. He clarifies exactly what it is because what he says is, be filled with the Spirit. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Beloved, I'm going to get technical here for just a moment. What follows that imperative, that express command, are things called participles, five of them. And what those participles are doing is giving us some indication of what is meant by the command. Now, which are the participles? They're the I-N-G words that you find here. Some of you who are, who are better at grammar than me, please, I'm not trying to be pedantic. I'm just trying to explain this. And some of you are better at grammar than me. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. First, this first participle, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How do we know that we're filled with the Spirit? Beloved, it begins to show in how we interact with one another. There's a different spirit in us. There's a different feel to how we treat one another. That the, the tenor of our interactions with each other is grace, kindness, love, servitude, all manner of different things that, that talk about or that describe how we live with one another, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does that mean? Letting, letting the precepts of Christ as delineated in Scripture be the primary diet for what we eat, drink, and how we talk, how we treat one another. It's beautiful. Then he expands on that making melody, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, that we are people of praise, that we are created in the image of God per Genesis chapter 1 for the express purpose as male and female to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength and to worship Him all the days of our life so that what we do here this morning is not rote, it's not just the thing that we do because it's right. We are fulfilling a command and the, the absolute fundamental reality of our humanity is that we are worshipers. And we are going to worship. Whether it be at the altar of God or at the altar of Baal, we will be worshiping. And so Paul says, you're filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. How, how do you know the way I treat people? the way that I interact with the Lord, singing, making melody to the Lord with my heart. Paul will use heart there. And Paul loves to take one word like heart or mind or flesh and have it be representative of the whole person. So singing and making melody, not just with one part of me, but with all of who I am. That all of who I am is soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. That all of who I am is committed to Christ. And I love the note of gratitude, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you, can't, you won't come across a more profound and a more difficult passage of Scripture. I want you to think about this for just a moment because Paul gives no qualification here. What does he say? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're talking about Paul, who often wrote as a prisoner in the Lord, who often wrote as an enemy of the state, 
who often wrote as someone despised by his own countrymen, who often wrote as one having been beaten or shipwrecked or struggling with maladies, who was hungry and naked half the time, or, or, or not properly clothed, let's say it that way, who says, giving thanks, an evidence of the filling of the Spirit is that we are giving thanks always and for everything to God our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that we are not on our own, that we have been bought by Christ if we're in Him this morning, and that our lives are His. This is a hard one because what it means is, is that we have to fundamentally be transformed in our thinking as we'll look at in Romans to understand that my life is the Lord's and He is in control of it. And I know that not because it always goes the way I want it to, but because it's true, period, whether we believe it or not. And so, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this last one, another tough one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, being willing to come under the mission of other people out of reverence for Christ. This doesn't just mean leadership here. This means one to another. This means seeking to live in ways that are submissive to other brothers and sisters out of reverence, out of worship, out of respect for and to Jesus Christ. And so when you start taking these things together, beloved, what you have is this. You have a picture of exactly what Paul means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. You need go no further than Ephesians 5, 19, 20, and 21. Again, you'll find it in Galatians. We'll read it when Paul talks about the, the fruit of the Spirit. But we don't have to go any further right here. So when, it, when someone says, hey, we should be imitators of Christ or imitators of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, well, what does that mean? Boom, right here. This is what it means. It means addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It means singing and making melody to the Lord in our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, Brad, he doesn't say anything about living righteously. Beloved, here's how I would answer that. If we do those things, we'll be, living, we'll be seeking to live righteously because incorporated into that list of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, which Jesus himself says captures the heart of the law. And so when we start thinking about the table that we're about to come to here in just a few moments, we're, th we're looking at a table. One, one Puritan said, this is the image in Scripture given us of Christ. And I love that idea, this is the image of Christ. This image that we come up under, the body which was given, the blood which was shed. So we're looking at the image of sacrifice itself as the main impetus for how we relate to God through Jesus and how we live our lives to the glory of God under the authority, power, and grace of Jesus. And so Scripture is calling us this morning to be filled with the Spirit the ripple effect of what it means to be redeemed. And so I want to challenge us as we make our way into Romans. When we start talking about what does it mean to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, 
It means to be filled with the Spirit. And what does that mean? It means what Paul says here, what Paul says in Galatians. It means all the rich truth of what it means to be captured by the redeeming love of Jesus Christ that we might be the aroma of life to Him and to the world, or the aroma of life for Him and to the world, though they don't know they need it. Beloved, we have the supreme challenge, you and I. We live in a culture just like Paul did that hates the truth of the gospel, that hates the message of life, and that hates the reality of God. And we have two choices, really. They're binary. We live for the Lord. We live for the Lord in this world, or we back down. And like some of Paul's compatriots, for the love of this world, we abandon the truths of Scripture. But if we are to be filled with the Spirit, we have one choice, to live for the glory of Christ. And so that's our challenge this morning as we come to the table. Please pray with me. Father, thank You so much this morning for the table before us as we are preparing our hearts and minds even now and for the rich truth here in Ephesians that captures the essence of what it means to be filled. Oh God, fill us, stir our hearts afresh, renew our thinking, help us be imitators of You, help us to walk in the light, help us to do all these things that compel us to not just see redemption as this thing, this event, this theological truth that has no bearing on us, but for us to engage that redemption in the reality that we are rescued, that we are called to live for Christ. Father, give us the boldness to do it, and, pray, and we pray that as we turn our hearts to the table, that you would truly transform us and renew our minds. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.